everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Welcome back to the podcast. Brandon and I are going to do a, another one of our like lightning round kind of roundtable discussions. Uh, but today we thought we would talk about all things vascular access. So we're going to talk about different lines, when to place them, where to place them, how to place them, etc. Like they say, it's just not the ICU unless you have at least three or four new holes. Right. So I don't know about you, Brandon, my probably most commonly placed line, which I guess is not technically a vascular access line, would be an arterial line. Yeah. Uh, Well, you do a lot of neuro, and maybe that's why. Yeah. So we do tend to put uh, A-lines in almost all of our neuro patients. You like to have close blood pressure monitoring. I mean, I guess you do blood gases, but that's probably the main thing, right? You want to know right away if somebody's high or low. Yeah, exactly. So what about you? What about in your practice? When do you place an A-line? What's your general indication? So A-lines are funny, right? Because, you know, it's been said no one's ever died for lack of an A-line. And like you said, it's not really a therapeutic thing. It's a monitoring device. Um, You know, some people will say anyone on the vent should have an A-line. Some people will say anyone on pressors should have an A-line. you know, people will say like frequent blood draws as an indication, but you know many of our patients have a central line or some other way you could do that. I don't know if I subscribe to any of that, although there are certainly cases when it's true. For me, an A-line is a, a tool for resuscitation. So the best time to have an A-line is when you have a, a, a sick, like crashing patient. Um, that is when A-lines shine. I mean, a, a patient who's really circling the drain, I'd almost rather have an A-line than a central line. I mean, if you have good peripheral access, you can do most things through that until you have a chance for something else. But I mean, if someone's blood pressure is totally in the dirt, so low you can hardly measure it non-invasively, and if you do, you don't trust it. Um, Cardiac arrest, they can be just a great tool for, you know, you you glance at it, you can see if you have a pulse. You know, you can tell the difference between no blood pressure and a a map of 20 and 40, whereas good luck doing that in other ways. I mean, you can use it for you know, assessments of volume status, all kinds of useful things. Once patients kind of stabilize, I don't really feel too strongly about them. Yeah, I think one way to look at A-lines, like any of these things, and like anything we do in the ICU in general, right, is what is it going to give you that you can't get somehow else, right? So frequently I get this call that, hey, so-and-so's A-line's not working anymore do you want me to pull it or do you want to try and fix it? And that's sort of what I run through is, well, what am I getting from the A-line that I couldn't get somewhere else? And if the answer is, well, not really much, then I just say, go ahead and pull it. Um, yeah, they have like a life cycle, right? I mean, especially yeah. radials, a lot of them will start to peter out on you. And in almost all cases, by the time that happens, you probably don't need it anymore. Of course, something can happen anew, and then you could put in a new one. But, I mean, most people, they get sick, and then hopefully they get better. Sure. So, uh, I don't know about in your place, our hospital has a policy that you can only stick the radial artery for ABGs I think it's five times in 24 hours or something like that. There's a limit, basically. They don't want, um, and I think mostly this is they don't want, because if patients don't have A-lines, then the respiratory therapists are sticking them. They don't want just repeated sticking 
to that radial artery. And so if we've got somebody who needs serial ABGs for some reason, then that's sort of an indication for an A-line. Although I'm sort of getting into this point now where I feel like there's not a whole lot of indications for serial ABGs either. Totally. I, I mean, compared to some people who just love to look at PO2s and I don't know what, I'm not a real gas happy guy. I don't usually use my pulse ox for oxygenation. And the only reason I'm getting a gas is if I want to see the CO2 or the, the pH. And I'm generally happy to do that with a VBG. Um, so I, I'm not someone who gets frequent gases in almost any case. I mean, that can certainly be an indication if you're doing, you know, I don't know, more than two or three gases a day. Um, but I would say for me, at least that's rarely why I'd put one in. So let's say you're, you've made up your mind that you, your patient needs an A-line. What's, what's your go-to site? I will generally start with a radial and often this would be in the setting, you know, unless it's just for something like post-op monitoring or, or like a neuro patient, um, but someone who's sick, um, it's often at the same time, maybe as you're putting in a central line. So yeah, I might do something like prep them for like an IJ or subclavian or whatever I'm doing. And I'll often prep their wrist as well and put it in position. And then I'll just make a little hole in my drape and do that after most of the time is the setup. So that takes no time at all. The times when I would turn to something like a fem would be someone who is really, truly sick. Um, I'll, I'll trust that central pressure more than a peripheral one, especially if they're on a ton of pressors and really vasoconstricted. Um, the challenge is sometimes they don't start out sick and then by the time they get there, you're not super enthused about putting any more holes in them. Um, but if you think you're going that way to, or you're already there and then I don't, I wouldn't say I routinely use other sites like axillaries, brachials, whatever else I did a couple of DPs in my day. Um, I would say those are usually sort of alternatives to a fem, uh, if for some reason you're not excited about using that site, but if you want maybe, um, something central. Yeah, so I think radial is probably my go-to as well. Um, I am, unlike you, I hardly ever place a femoral A-line. If I need something more reliable than a radial, like you said, and I agree with everything you said, a patient who's very sick, who especially is on multiple pressors, and I want a good central pressure, I'm going to go axillary. And I think that's probably just a little bit of our patient population. We tend to have a lot of, of very obese patients and femoral access becomes more tricky. Now I do place some femoral lines. That's just not my go-to. Uh, I think I, axillary is like, I want it to work better than it ever has for me. And that's probably a, a personal failing, but like, uh, you know, especially when you're doing a lot of subclavians, which I like to do, it's, it'd be so convenient to just slip it an A-line in next to it. Yeah. But it's not quite like that. Cause you don't usually do it through the you know, front of the chest. That's a, they call it transpectoral approach, which has been described, but I've done like one or two. It's a little naughty. I mean, it's, it's very deep. Right. <laughs> um, I'm not real excited about it. So usually you're talking about, you know, you're doing it more kind of in the armpit and usually you have to reposition them. People usually put their arm up or something like that. Um, so it's not quite as straightforward. And I don't know, I, I just, I've had a, a little bit hit or miss. I think a lot of the time the, they kink on me. Yeah, so actually I had one uh, not too long ago, went in great, and uh, I mean, not even an hour later, the nurse is calling me saying, it won't draw at all, won't flush. Uh, I go to look at it, and uh, I thought, well, I'll just slip a wire in it and see if I can put a stiffer catheter in, and couldn't even get the wire to go. When I pulled it out, it was kinked a solid 90 degrees. Now, this is a guy who was very obese, 
and I think it was just redundant tissue in his armpit even that was causing it to kink because for the most part, I have pretty good success with these. My um, kind of go-to technique is to get a wrist restraint and put the patient's head arm up kind of behind their head like they're hanging out watching TV and tie that wrist restraint either to the back of the bed or to something on the back wall of the ICU to hold it in place and then um, go high up in the armpit. And like I said, for whatever reason, I tend to have pretty good success with that. You, you stick um, on the chest, like the anterior axillary line, or you actually go on the arm? On the arm, yeah. Kind of very high up on the arm. I had uh, an attending one time tell me, if you're not having to shave the pits, you're probably not high enough. So <laughs> See, the um, only thing is that, to me, in a way, you could argue that's a brachial. I mean, at least the, you know, a portion of the line is a brachial. And I'm not necessarily saying brachials are a bad idea. People get kind of heated about that. But if you don't believe in doing brachials, uh, maybe you shouldn't be doing that because at least part of it is, right? Yeah, I think you can make that argument, right? I, I think there's a lot of, in, you know, vasculature in the arm, especially when we talk about A-lines, it, it's all a little bit of a matter of degrees, right? Uh, how high up in the forearm are you placing a radial before it becomes really not really a radial anymore. Uh, and the same thing with the brachial. How far up in the upper arm before it's not a brachial? Yeah, I mean, I, I, th- I guess the argument would be that if you at least get onto the, the chest, then you're probably proximal to some, or you're past a point of some collaterals, such that if you thrombose the vessel, the arm is probably not ischemic. And it's probably large enough that it's unlikely. But I definitely think a lot of this is more voodoo than actual kind of risk. There's also people occasionally talk about worrying that if you flush too vigorously through an axillary, it's so close to the aortic arch, um, you can flush up towards the carotids. And if you flush some air or something, that might not be great. Uh, I usually ask people to just manually flush them kind of gently. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I had not, I had not thought about that, but uh, that's a good point. Um, so what about, you know, do you use typically the standard kind of a-line kit um, catheter and needle, like the needle over the, or the catheter over the needle tool? For axillaries? For any of your lines. So, the yeah, those little arrow kind of retain wire things I'll usually use um, for radials. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't really like it much for anything else. Um, the You know, they, they make femoral A-lines that I'll use if we have. My current place uses just kind of a – it's actually a, a single lumen – uh, central line, uh, and we use that as a femoral A-line. Um, and there's always this kind of middle ground for, for things like axillaries or maybe a brachial if you want, or even a kind of proximal radial if you go up on the arm for some reason. Um, it can be nice to have something that's longer than the radial that's not quite so long as like a monster fem one. Um, so some they, uh, they probably make some. I, don't, I haven't really seen a lot of them. Sometimes I'll use a micropuncture sheath for that, and sometimes for axillaries, that's a good one. That Like 10 centimeters, um, if you just leave mm-hmm. the sheath in, that makes it a decent line. It's not made for that purpose, so you should kind of give some pause to that, but the length is about right. Yeah, so I use the radial arrows for radial lines, like you said. Occasionally, I will find that you get a little bit better life out of them if you use a longer catheter. And so I will uh, sometimes exchange over a wire the radial catheter for a femoral A-line catheter. Uh, but typically only if it's been in you know, for a, a short amount of time and it's failing. 
Uh, I won't rewire for a short, uh, a short catheter for another short catheter. Uh, and then, yeah, the micropuncture kit, that's uh, sort of my go-to for axillary as well. Um, and then I think we probably use the very similar, the single lumen, uh, we call it a pediatric IJ kit, uh, but it's basically like a single lumen um, central venous catheter, like for kids. Yeah. Uh, but they're great for brachial, axillary, femoral. Uh, we have those femoral arrows. I hate those things. Uh, I think the catheter is so long that it's very, it's and, and flimsy. You know, so if you're holding it by the hub, by the where you would normally hold the needle, the needle's so long that you're bending the needle almost, trying to get through the skin, uh, and then that wire, the the retained wire, is so long out, it just becomes really unwieldy. And I, so at that point, I would rather just use the um, the deep line. Yeah, ours is I think 20 centimeters, which I think is fine for a fem. I mean, it, it's kind of long for most other things i think i mean if you put it in like an axillary i mean it's it's probably like in the heart and i mean yeah i'll sometimes rewire radials to a longer one too i used to try to rewire ones to the same catheter and that never works yeah because it's sitting in like a fibrin sheath and you put in a new catheter the same size it's still in there but yeah if you rewire to a longer one it works but again to like a fem one i feel like it's a little long i mean it's probably in the brachial by the time the tip ends so like something like those micropuncture sheaths i think is fine 10 centimeters our um our femoral arrows are more along the lines of like the cook um, micropuncture catheter size and our um the peds ij catheter that we use about the same length so not nearly as long as what you're talking about yeah 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 it's definitely it, it all varies <laughs> yeah um all right and i guess the last question about a lines ultrasound or no ultrasound uh so i um i guess it's similar to central lines for me i'm better with the ultrasound I, that's typically my default certainly someone who's sketchy and high risk their vessels are a challenge or they're coagulopathic um, the times I would do it blind would be there is no ultrasound. Maybe somebody else is using it for some other line or whatever, or heaven forbid it's broken or something. Um, or I just really want to practice, which is not too common. Um, but I do try to somewhat maintain the skill, um, especially, you know, maybe if you're doing a couple, you know, fem lines, like a central and an A line, um, you know, I'm okay at blind radials far from the people who do them all the time. But at the end of the day, if it was one skill you're going to maintain mastery of, for me, it, it should be ultrasound guided. Yeah, same here. Uh, when I was early on in training, someone told me it's good to be able to get a radial A-line blind for the reasons you just described, right? And then the common scenario that we would encounter is a patient who's rapidly deteriorating and one of us is going to take the ultrasound up and put something in the neck and the other one is going to go down and put the a-line at the same time so i'm with you i typically will use the ultrasound unless i don't have it and then every now and then from time to time i'll just sort of say hey this pulse is pretty good i'm going to just try it blind just to sort of maintain that skill yeah it's um it's a perfect example of the that that axiom of like if you don't have time to do it right, you probably need to have time to, to do it again. Because right. doing it without the ultrasound is definitely faster if you get it the first time. But right. it, it also has the possibility of taking like 
an hour. <laughs> so, right, right. whereas if you start with the ultrasound, if you go to needle guidance, I mean, you're pretty much a hundred percent to just slip it right in. So if you, if you're in a rush, I'm almost more inclined to use it. Cause then I know I'm going to get it. Yeah. Uh, well, while we're on the topic of ultrasound and this applies not just to arterial lines, but also to central lines, uh, short axis or long axis. Oh boy. So I'm a, sh- I'm a short axis guy in general. And my argument for that is, um, if you're going to master one skill and I think that's somewhat reasonable to argue for that, um, I think short axis is the more useful skill. And I say that because it's, it's challenging. And if you're doing ultrasound guided, you know, vascular access, it is really the one skill to that, that needs development, but it's portable. Once you master that, you can use it for just about any, you know, device you put in the body. Um, but if you get really good at that, then you can guide anything anywhere. You can, you can steer. I mean, you can go around structures into other ones. Whereas with a, a long axis view, you're really locked in. Um, a long axis view, the probe gets in your way sometimes. It, it, you can't sometimes fit it lengthwise uh, around other things. For example, if you're doing an IJ, um, you may run into the clavicle, uh, things mm-hmm. like that. Um, and I mean, it is long axis easier I mean, in a way, it's easier to visualize, but keeping the, the needle and the probe lined up can be can be quite challenging, to be honest. Um, so I think if you're going to learn one thing, you learn short axis, and then maybe you add long axis as a, a useful uh, tool. And I also think this is in the category of people who really think it's handy to do long axis, maybe people who are doing predominantly IJs under ultrasound, uh, because it, it works quite good for that. It's a, it's a superficial, very straight vessel. Um, but when you turn to things like maybe fems and especially subclavians, um, and you know, just kind of naughty, weird vessels, it starts to get, to get weirder, I think. So that's interesting because I would agree with you for the most part, i typically use short axis for everything. The one time that I do try to use long axis more is with subclavians. Um, and the reason for that is I feel like I can better visualize the, um, the vessel in relationship with the dome of the lung uh, and feel more comfortable that I know where the tip of the needle is at all times, as opposed to with the short axis, you know, you, you don't, you're not a hundred percent sure that you're seeing the tip of the needle and not a cross section of it. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of people like it for the subclavian, I guess the only, uh, and it's for that reason. So you don't, you know, go too deep. Um, I guess I just, I feel like there's a, can be a little bit of false comfort there. Cause you can, you can still lose sight of your tip with a long axis view. You can, I mean, oh, yeah, absolutely. you can still be looking at a portion of your needle, but not the absolute entire thing. And, you know, it's, it's just a quarter millimeter shift of the probe to that you would see the, the tip of it. Um, but I mean, I've still, I've still been deeper than I realized sometimes with a long axis view. Yeah. And that's the big, I think the big challenge with the long axis view is like you said, with a short axis, you know, I can move the probe a fairly decent amount and maintain the same view. A long axis view, the subtlest little movement, and I've lost the needle altogether, uh, or I've lost the vessel altogether. Um, and so I think the long axis is definitely harder uh, to maintain. And so I agree with you. Short axis is a good, the best way to learn to begin with um, because it's, it's so forgiving, if that makes sense. Yeah, forgiving in the sense that 
it's once you master it, it's it kind of shows you everything. Now, right, mastering right. it is legitimately difficult, but I mean, it, it's that it, it is what it is. I mean, right. <laughs> you just got to learn it. Right. Um, so, vascular more more into actual vascular access. When when would your when would you place a central venous catheter in a patient? Like, what are your your big indications? Um, I think I'm like a lot of people uh, where I am in most places we've been, we will typically use them for vasopressors. I know some places have gotten aggressive with doing more peripheral lines for that. Um, and sometimes we will, but generally someone who's on pressures will put in a central line. Um, certainly people who are, are just quite sick. I, I start to worry not so much about having peripherals, but reliability. That's always what it's about for me. Can I trust that my lines are not going to fail when I least want them to, and maybe not even be realized. Um, uh, I don't usually place them for monitoring per se, like CVPs and things. Um, I, I guess you always could do that. And then if you really need massive uh, resuscitation, like a, a bleeding patient, I will generally go to a, a big central line, um, a cordis, or especially like a dialysis catheter. I know some people are believers in peripherals, but again, for me, it's about reliability. The last thing I want to do is realize we just pressure infused 10 units of blood into somebody's arm. Yeah. Well, that's a good point too. Um, you know, I, I think what we always think about with massive resuscitation is that you need that big, um, big diameter and short distance. But like you said, central lines are a little more reliable. So better to have a reliable thick line, like a, like you said, like a cordis or, um, a dialysis catheter, than, like you said, a, a short um, peripheral that may have slipped out of the vessel. and Yeah, people get hung up about, you know, the, the flow rates. But, I mean, all of these things are going to be reasonable flows under, under pressure. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, we all know how often you lose peripherals, especially, you know, with demodus patients with iffy vasculature and, and so on. So it just scares me. I've, I mean, I've right. seen central lines come out, too. Nothing is totally reliable. but Sure, sure. So location ij yeah um i will certainly turn to ijs often for routine purposes i mean in my role nowadays there's often people who are learning who are are trying to get some lines in that part of that means that if i am doing one there's maybe a little bit of a higher chance that it may have some issues where perhaps there can't be an ij um so i Maybe relatively speaking, I do somewhat more um, uh, fems or subclavians. If I had my druthers, I would do mostly subclavians because I think there's just a great line, very clean, very enjoyable to do. You have a nice flat working service. The angles are all very nice. Um, of course, you have to you know be technically sound, and you know it, especially under ultrasound, if things just don't look good, um, I, I sort of don't love it. I mean, you can have complications. And then very sick patients, you know, FEMS are a nice choice. You stay away from the head. Um, I'm not so worried about, you know, sometimes people worry about patients who can't put their head flat. Um, I don't really mind doing an IJ that's not totally flat with really scrupulous air precautions, um, but it certainly can be easier to do a FEM. Um, and, you know, there may be patient-specific considerations like, you know, like your neuro patients where you might want to avoid the IJ uh, and so on. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I would agree with that. I think the IJ is probably the, 
quick, easy way to go. Um, but I, I'm with you. I think if if I'm allowed to choose, uh, I like subclavians a lot for all the reasons you mentioned, right? They were very clean. Um, I loved them as a bedside nurse. They were just very easy to take care of. Um, super easy to put dressings on and off of as compared to the neck. Um, just a really nice line. Now, I think we've mentioned, you and I, I think, have talked about this before, but confirmation of placement. When you talk about putting a central line in, let's say you're putting an IJ line in, uh, I know it's a little bit varied practice regionally, which I thought was was very interesting for me to learn because I've always learned it the same way. Um, but using the, the um, manometry, or what we would call the Fabian test, where you hook a uh, length of tubing up to the uh, to a short catheter before you dilate and draw back some a column of blood and see if it rises or falls to confirm arterial or venous placement um, wh- how I learned it that's standard procedure and that's you know sort of I don't know if it's policy where we are but it's certainly encouraged um, but I'm finding that that's not universal yeah um, I don't think it's a bad idea to do that routinely Um I would say for me, the the main confirmation of venous placement, and certainly venous placement is the most important thing. You can x-ray it and make sure your tip is perfect or whatever, but you want to make sure you're in a vein first. Um, the best way is just to use ultrasound and actively visualize your needle going into the vessel. Um, now, that being said, just like people who visualize their tube going into the glottis when they're intubating, um, you should also have some humility about that because people think that they visualize and sometimes don't. So if there's any question in my mind, because maybe the visualization was so-so, maybe the, the flow or the color of the blood or something looks a little iffy, um, I will then confirm. I'm not a big believer in just ultrasounding your wire and seeing it in the vessel because if you look a little past there, you always lose sight of it. And how are you going to confirm that you didn't go through the back wall and you're in somewhere else? Um, so I will usually do a, a fluid column, like you said. I've had kits mm. where they give you a little length of IV tubing for that. Otherwise, many times the uh, the tubing around the wire can be attached. I think I learned that from Scott Weingart. Um, so I think that's uh, the quickest and most definitive and reliable method. I will sometimes do a, uh, a flush test where you just flush some saline into the catheter and have someone echo the heart and see bubbles in the right heart. Um, that can be handy for, uh, you know, really kind of odd circumstances. Um, but I would say the pretty much those, those cover it uh, for me. I would not give almost any credence to just the, the pressure on the line or what it looks like. I don't think anyone can tell if something is arterial or venous by the color of the blood. That that is super deceptive. Um, Yeah, agreed. So I think it's interesting using ultrasound to confirm. I have not, I'm with you. I've not had a whole lot of success with ultrasound in the wire um, because you can only go so far, especially I have found when you're doing IJ lines, I run into the clavicle with the probe and I can't get any further down and exactly, I can't yeah. swear that the wire didn't go out the back wall. And really, um, I mean, you, if you use ultrasound to place it, you're not confirming it. You're using, you're doing the same thing. <laughs> if you couldn't see it right. then, why can you see it now? Right. Right. Um, and it's interesting. You talk about the bubble test. I think that's a, a fascinating idea. However, I find in practice, it's really cumbersome because, very seldom, number one, do I have a uh, an assistant with me who knows how to echo 
the heart. Yeah, correct. You're, um, you probably are the only one. You know, I mean, I'm, usually it's a nurse who may or may not know even how to use the ultrasound, much less how to, how to find the heart. Um, but also the patient's covered up with a drape. The ultrasound is usually, um, you know, on the field for me to use to place the line, et cetera. And it, it really just kind of ends up being more cumbersome I think than it's worth. Now, one time I have used it with really good success. I placed a left subclavian line on a patient. We got an x-ray to confirm and the tip of it actually was in the IJ. It had gone up the, the, the ipsilateral IJ, uh, instead of down. And so we rewired, pulled it back and we're trying to float it down. And instead of replacing it, getting another x-ray, replacing it, getting another x-ray. Uh, actually my attending put the probe on the patient's neck. Uh, I pulled the catheter back a certain amount, put the wire through. We watched the IJ to see if the wire was going up in the IJ and we saw it go up. So back the wire out, try it again. No wire this time. Great. Advanced the catheter, flushed it, bubbles in the neck did the whole thing again. So three or four tries of this finally got it to drop and uh, get in the right position, get the confirmatory x-ray. It's in the right spot. Uh, and it turned out that was very helpful because I probably would have had to get five or six x-rays and, and I'm sure would have just given up at that point. Yeah, trying, to, yeah. trying to reposition this line. Yeah. I mean, if you're doing an IJ or a subclavian, I, I think a very rational strategy would be to either do a flush or like a fluid column confirm that it's venous and then maybe, you know, throw the probe over the ipsilateral IJ and make sure that you're not going up there. And mm -hmm. if you do those things, um, I, I think a hundred percent, you could use the line while you wait on an x-ray. And that could be useful because if you have a really sick patient, you need the access. You don't want to be sitting around twiddling your thumbs until you're able to, you know, shoot a film. Yeah. Um, all right. So moving on from triple lumens, what about pick lines do you guys use a lot of pick lines in the icu um, i'm not a huge fan they certainly have utility but i think the majority of the time when someone considers a pick line for an icu patient um it's probably not the right choice and the reason i say that is because um you got to understand that they don't have any improvement in infectious risk, right? You have the same chance of having a collapse in inpatients with a pick line as a regular non-tunneled central line. So that has no benefit there. Um, you know, in a patient with a ton of risk for mechanical complications with a central line placement, like bleeding or something, maybe that is safer with a pick. Um, but, you know, with skilled users, those risks are, are pretty low. And really, in acutely ill patients, they're just not that versatile. You can't put that much stuff through them. They're, um, you know, they're, they're long and fussy. They're just, they're not really what you want. They're really more tools for people who are transitioning towards leaving. You may need long-term antibiotics, things like that. The other time I think people will invoke them is someone who doesn't need central access, but just needs some kind of access and it's difficult. But again, a pick is a central line. And if you don't need central access, you shouldn't be using it. What you want is probably a midline. So big fan of midlines, not so much of picks. Do you place picks in midlines yourself? I do. I have done a few picks, um, but both for reasons that they can be a little bit challenging to get 
training on and because again i'm just not a huge believer in them mm-hmm. um i mostly do midlines i do a lot of them and for whatever reason have become like the midline guy the last couple of places i've worked um but i really think that you know for most icu patients if they need something central a regular central line if they don't uh midlines are often the way to go i learned doing just kind of quote regular ultrasound guided ivs usually with those slightly longer ones, like mm-hmm. 1.88 inches, something like that. I wouldn't put anything shorter than that. But even those, they usually last a day or two. And there's actually literature on this. And then they fail because they're just not long enough. So it's good for training because you could put in a million of them. Um, but if you're kind of tired of putting IVs in, what you want is a midline, something, you know, maybe 8, 10 centimeters that's not going to come out and will probably last the patient their whole hospital stay. Yeah. Um, we don't place a whole lot of midlines. I... I don't do a whole lot of picks either. We do our own picks for the most part. Although to be honest, we have a pick service in the hospital. That's especially trained nurses who can do them. Um, and more often than not, I feel like placing picks is just, just sort of a pain. And so more often than not, if I have a patient that I feel needs a pick, they rarely need a pick right this minute. And so I'll just consult the vascular access team and have one of the pick nurses come do it. They're probably better at it than me. Not probably. They are better at it than me. Um, and that's all they do all day. So they can, they can fool with the hassle of it. I just, yeah, I just find that picks are very cumbersome to place. They're just very time consuming. There's a lot of steps involved. We use the, um, Sherlock is the proprietary brand. I don't know what the, it's the, the, technology that uh detects the tip of the of the pick line oh yeah um, one of those using like, like a magnetic EKG sensor or yeah or there is ekg yeah. but also this um i think it's magnetic is how it works if there's a sensor that sits on the patient's chest and you can watch it uh sort of like the the um core track if you've ever seen that that places the dobhoff tubes yeah um and i find that it's very hit or miss whether it works and I end up getting an x-ray most of the time anyway. Um, and so, like I said, it's just for my money, it's a lot of work for not a lot of payoff. And if, if a patient needs a pick, I'm kind of happy to defer that to the pick team to do. Well, it, it, it ties in weird ways into the care, right? Cause on one hand, um, they're annoying to get, which might mean that if, Say you think the patient might have an infection, and with a central line, you would have just taken it out. But the pick, you, you don't really want to, because you don't want to have to get a new one. Right. So that's that's not good. Or maybe the fact that you're feeling kind of lazy, and you could just click a button and order someone else to place the pick means you're more likely to do it versus something else when you shouldn't. Right, so, yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So let's talk about, the. I guess, the last thing that I can think of to discuss in this. And that is the PA catheter. PA catheters, is there a place for these anymore in the ICU? And if so, when? Yeah, the pendulum goes back and forth, right? I mean, back in the day, everyone had them. And then, you know, a couple big studies suggesting not really improved outcomes when they're used routinely, and then they all sort of went away. I think that's a maybe a little bit of a, an overshoot. Um, I certainly don't think they should be used routinely outside of special circumstances like you know maybe cardiac surgery things like that um i I think for me the time when i would consider them would be a patient with really undifferentiated shock we just really cannot figure out why they're in shock or we have some ideas but it's clearly multifactorial 
So they have some distributive shock from sepsis. They have a very poor heart and probably some cardiogenic shock. Maybe there's some sort of obstructive pathology. Um, you know, good luck sort of navigating that just on, on clinical grounds. So those can be smart patients for a PA catheter, I think. Now, you can maybe do other things like rely on echo and that sort of thing. But I do think that just trying to completely abolish it from the ICU uh, is probably is probably too much. And there's a, there's a feedback loop here, right? We don't do them as much, so people are not as comfortable doing them or as used to them, or they feel like someone's going to look at them funny if they do them, so then they continue to not do them. Um, but, you know, if you just, you're scratching your head and you're doing weird stuff like, um, you know, non-invasive monitors and they're giving you kind of random numbers and you can't really get good echo windows and stuff, you know, why not do them? It's just another central line, essentially. Sure. Yeah. And I was going to say the same thing, right? That I think the problem comes into if you don't do them regularly, then will you know how to use them when you need them? Right. And I think the biggest danger from the PA catheter is not placing it or even having it in place. It's that it gives you a lot of data that you, maybe you don't know what to do with and that you're going to make poor decisions based on that lack of knowledge. Yeah. And there, you know, there are other things like this, you know, um, some ventilator modes can be like this. Yeah. You, if you're a guy who uses APRV or some other odd stuff, that may be great, but what's going to happen when you go off shift and no one else in your unit knows how to deal with it. So it's to some extent, you know, these things should probably be more institutional. Like if you're going to do PA catheters, everyone should occasionally do them. The nurses need to know how to take care of them. The providers need to know how to read them and so on. Well, that's been a good discussion of just sort of a little bit of all things lines. Um, you have anything else that you want to throw in? I think that'll do it. All right. Sounds good. Well, I hope everybody's enjoyed this as usual, and we'll see you next time.